Father, I thank you for the privilege of being called to your church. Uh, we looked at that last time. The fact that we're here, what initiated all that was your call to us. We thank you for that. Here we are, as we look this morning at a man who also was called back, uh, unwittingly perhaps, but Lord, called back into relationship with his Father. Speak to us, we pray. May your word penetrate our exterior, engage our hearts, and transform us from within, preacher and listener alike. Do surgery on us, then we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, keep that passage open, if you would, uh, Luke 15. I know it's a really, really familiar passage. Uh, you know, you've probably heard it a million times. Hey, when was the last time Rivergate heard the parable of the prodigal? Oh, good, good. It's one of those over-preached passages normally. Now, I've picked it up because it comes under our theme. Uh, if you remember our theme, a gospel-shaped community. And it will uh, cover some of those bases. Listen up, because although the, the parable may be familiar, uh, we're going to bring out things that are often missed in the parable together. Not just today, um, in order to spare you uh, an hour-long sermon, you'd be pleased to know I've chopped it in half, okay? So the second half will be in a fortnight after the holiday, okay? There you go, you're breathing a sigh of relief now, aren't you? Phew. So, but you, it means you've got to come back for the second part because it's going to be an incomplete sermon. But let me just launch off. Prince Charles, your king-to-be, our king-to-be. Pardon? What did somebody say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, most probably, anyway. So Prince Charles, it, it was in a... One of his news conferences, you know, they have to put up with these things. He was in Switzerland. Uh, it was 2005. Uh, and uh, as he was being interviewed by some reporters, he said something quietly to his sons. Little did he realize that the cameras or the voice recorders picked up what he said. This is what he said uh, quietly. He muttered to his sons, excuse the language here, okay? He says, about the journalist, bloody people. Okay, and then he described Nicholas Witchell, you know, a famous, well-known household name in Britain, a news reporter. He says, he's awful. I can't bear that man. <laughs> and, and they caught it all on recording. He went on to say, he went on to say that he says, I hate doing this and I hate these people. I mean, it, it wasn't the best moment in Prince Charles's uh, life there, but look, it was captured. Look, and the reality is, we're we thinking, you know, you know, what, you know, you know, he deserves it maybe, but hey, we all do that, don't we? I mean, how many of you here? You have a, a lady come up to you, uh, and she had her hair done. Okay, and and she says, you know, do you like my new hair? <laughs> hair do? I mean, what do you say? Of course you do, don't you? It's says, beautiful, amazing. Okay, right. But what are you really thinking? What are you really thinking? Yeah, you are, aren't you? And if you're with your partner, it's like, goodness sake, you know, what has she done? Seriously, we're all guilty of it. Fortunately, we don't always get caught out. But here's what I want to ask, is how do you really know what someone thinks about your haircut? Or how do you really know what someone 
really thinks about you? And how can you be sure that they are really interested in you? Well, let me move it from us. How can you be sure what God thinks of you? Have you ever thought about what he really thinks of us? Uh, what he really thinks we're like? What he thinks of wretched sinners? And with, look, look at the week we've had. I mean, if your week's been anything like mine, and it's been you know, one stumbling block after another, difficulties and challenges of every nature, you know, things that we've done that we, we would be you know, ashamed to admit. What does God think of that? He sees us now we're here, aren't we? What's he really thinking about us? Knowing the kind of week we've had, knowing the kind of people we are, what does he think of us when he watches us in our world, abusing his resources, using them with no regard for him? What does he think about us when we come to him and when we plead Jesus' name? I mean, he's almost obliged to, isn't he? When you plead Jesus' name or Jesus' cross, it's like God owes it to you to have you back. Does he do that begrudgingly? Oh, he's, he's said the Jesus word. You know, he's mentioned the blood. I've, I've got to have him now. Come on, you know, you know, if you really must, yeah, you know, you, you can come to the church. What's he thinking about us? What does God think of his creation? You know, this parable is probably one of the most unique and the most incredible stories that Jesus tells because it's the one story of all of them that actually tells us or gives us a picture of what God is really thinking of us. I want to say it's shocking and yet powerful. Let me begin. It's actually the third of three parables. Troy read them for us. Thanks, Troy. The first one is a lost coin. Uh, sorry, the second one is a lost coin. The first one is the sheep that disappears, uh, the one sheep that the farmer goes for. And the third is the parable of the lost coin. So really, I mean, we haven't got time to look at all three. I mean, if this is taking two sermons, if we did all three, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> despair. Okay, so we're just going to focus on the third. But uh, the themes are following through. Our heading is a gospel-shaped community is what we're doing. Uh, and our heading for the ser uh, sermon today is this. A loving father and a grumpy brother. A loving father and a grumpy brother. Here's our heading, our first one. Uh, it's the only heading we'll do today. God heartily welcomes back his lost son. God heartily welcomes back his lost son. Verse 11 begins. Jesus continued. So it's a continuation of his three parables. The third one, Jesus continues, there was a man who had two sons. Let me ask you a question. Last time it took us 20 minutes to get through the question I asked. Okay? So if the sermon was long, it's your own fault. So we're going to have some quick fire, biblically focused answers. Okay? Here's a question. Why did Jesus use parables? And don't say the obvious one that comes to mind because that is the wrong answer. Why did Jesus generally use parables? No, you're not going to say anything, are you? <laughs> Don't say the obvious one. Say the non-obvious one. So that's the obvious one, which is the wrong answer, sorry. <laughs> okay. 
But, but even they didn't, yes, but he, he had to explain it to them. Thanks, Alan. But that is partially it. Troy's got the answer. Troy, what, why? So that they wouldn't understand. The, Jesus, the reason Jesus told parables, used parables, I haven't got time to argue that now, is so that they wouldn't understand what he was preaching. Like I said, look, that's a big story. I'll talk to you about that another time. In this case, the parable is to be understood by one group of people at least. Uh, it's a unique parable in that sense. Parables, here's how you read parables. They have one, almost always, parables have one central message which generally is to hide the truth. Okay, hence why, Alan, he had to explain it to the disciples because not even... Not even they could understand parables. Okay, this is how complex they were. They have one common truth normally, and that's the focus of it all. And they normally have an audience in mind. Okay, it's a surprise you. I'm not going to ask you now. I'm going to deal with it next time. It's a surprise you who the audience is this time. And again, it's not the it's not the it's not the audience you imagine. The audience this time again something we would never expect. But we'll look at it next time. We've got five scenes to cover. We're going to cover four scenes in this small parable today. We'll cover scene five next time. Here's scene one, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man. I've highlighted that, or Ali. Thanks, Ali. Uh, um, in my PowerPoint presentation here. I can't really call it my PowerPoint presentation anymore because I don't do them. But uh, uh, in my sermon one, okay. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Remember it says parables have one chief meaning normally. That is the chief purpose of this psalm. What am I talking about? Someone have a go. What am I getting at? That is the central theme of psalm, of the, prod of the prodigal parable. What, what am I talking about? Yeah, who's the man pointing to? Who is the man behind the story? The father, the father is the central character and the central message of this entire parable. It's all about him and his response to sinners, okay? Now, we're going we're gonna, to, again, just develop that uh, next time. But I want you to bear in mind that this is the central theme of the character to reveal or to expose this character, the man. So there was a man, the father had two sons. Verse 12 continuing. Oh, but let me just come back to verse 11 for a second. So he's got two sons. And here's another mistake that almost, the many, look, I, I've made this mistake several times. This is about the fourth, fifth time that I've preached this message. It's an entirely new message. I rewrote the whole thing from scratch. Because I made the same mistake that every other preacher makes. Every other preacher assumes that the focus of the parable is which of the two sons? The one who goes. He is not the focus of this parable. We've already said the focus is the father, but of the two sons... The focus is not the first one. And we're going to focus on him today because I can't miss this gospel opportunity that the first son provides us. So that's what we'll do together today. But the real focus, the real son that Jesus is 
talking about in this parable is not the first, it's the second song. And you'll see why again next time. You've got to come back next time, okay? Whatever happens, you've got to listen to that. So verse, verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Look, when it comes to money, the closest of people can fall out, really. A bit of business advice. I, I haven't done it. I know from my own siblings. Don't enter into business with your siblings. Okay, because when it comes to money, it divides. When it comes to inheritances, I mean, the number of people I know, when they no longer talk to one another, siblings, when they hate each other because of the wranglings about mom or dad's money. Okay, when it comes to inheritances, we see some of the ugliest scenes in life. And there's one here, okay? Both at the beginning and at the end. Again, we'll look at that last time. Two ugly scenes associated with inheritances. So he wants his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Look, he's not asking for pocket money, is he? And this isn't about, Daddy, no, I want to go away for the weekend. Can I have some money? No, it's much more, look, give me my share of the estate. What's he asking for? What's he, what's he asking his father to do? Because it's not all that clear. Have a think. Yeah. Either die, because the only way you get your inheritance if your dad dies... Okay, or how else is he going to give him his inheritance? He's either got to die, he's got to, he's got to sell the property. Can you see what's going on here? Okay, so this isn't just a request to draw out, you know, look, I'm going to, I need some cash after the service, so I'm just going to go to one of those boxes in the wall, put Lee's card in there, type his number, because I was watching him last time he took his cash out, and just take out a couple of K. <laughs> okay, right. But, but in this scenario, right, this is going to require, okay, there's no liquid assets. Okay, this is going to require major upheaval. He's due. How much is he due? I mean, they don't know about Jewish culture. How much is the younger? There's two brothers, two siblings. Uh, how much is the younger one due? A third. A third. Because the older gets the double portion. Okay, he's due a third. So a third of the property has got to be put on sale. Uh, land isn't, doesn't necessarily have to move across at that time, but it has to be designated and set in stone. He's got to sell a property, a portion of his property for his son. But the real issue here is not the money. And again, it can easily be lost here. The assumption is, isn't he? He just wants his money to go and have a good time. No, it's not really what's going on here. The money's merely a facilitator of what? What's really his intention? What's really in his heart? The money is merely facilitating what this is really about. It's this, but yeah, it's this one here. See? He, he wants to be out. That's what's going on here. See, he wants his money to facilitate that journey. What he really wants is for his dad to be dead or he's going to go. That's what's going on here. This guy so despises and has disdain for his father that what he's asking for, he's asking for his leave. I want to be gone from this family. Okay, And so it's not surprising, verse 12. So he... He divided his property between them, his father. Let me just say this. I mean, do you think the father knew what his son was going to do? Yeah, it's pretty obvious, hey? 
and he gives him the money. Why? Why, why would he do that? He knows exactly what he's going to do. Why does he give him the money? Because he loves him. Seriously, Graham. That's what's going on here. He loves him. Whatever the son feels for him, he loves him. Have you, you've seen the film Catch Me If You Can? Yeah? Oh, it's based on a true story. Obviously, artistic license. Amazing. This guy, before he's 19, has, has frauded the United States of America millions and millions of dollars by posing as a fighter pilot. I've been making thousands of dollars by posing as a pastor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So this guy, uh, and well, there's a scene in the movie where he, the, the, the cops are chasing this boy. They go up to his dad and they ask his dad, you know, you know tell us, you know, you're bound to know where he is. But he won't. Frank Abigail Sr. won't tell the police where Frank Abigail Jr. is. He says to him, I'll never tell you where my son is. Never tell you. You see, a father, look, you're all parents, most of you are parents here. You know the love you feel for your children. No matter what they've done, no matter who they are, what they are, you can't stop loving them, can you? This father knows exactly what his son's going to do, and yet he can't stop himself. He gives him his inheritance. And so verse 13, not long after, the younger son got together with all that he had, set up for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. You see, if there's ever any doubt about his intentions, it's clear. Can you see what he's doing in going to this distant country? His point is he wants to put an infinite amount of distance, an infinite amount of distance between himself and his father. He goes as far away as he possibly can and there unleashes his wild side. And now he has the ability to do so, you see. He has all the facility to unleash all that cooped up anger. It's almost, it's, it's, you, can, you can imagine what he's doing. It's not so much for pleasure. This is an act of rebellion or revenge. You see, that's what's going on here. It's, it's everything his dad hates. And he wants to invest in everything that his dad would despise. It's, 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 it's you know, it's a, it's, it's another thrust, another blow at his father. And so inevitably, what happens? If you ever, if you got money and you spend a lot of it, inevitably, he runs, he runs out, doesn't he? After he spent everything, there was a family in the land and he began to be in need. It's hard, you know, you might be thinking, hey, you know, surely, we're talking lots of money here. Surely he can't blow all that. Hey, have you, who are millionaires? Hollywood? How many Hollywood stars in the 80s? No, you're not old enough, that are you? Uh, in the 90s, you know, you know, A-list actors in, 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 the, in the 90s. You know, um, I, got a couple on the, I got a couple on there. Can we have, well, I know Michael's not an actor, but, you know, and the rest, please. Nicolas Cage, Mike Tyson, boxer, Stephen Baldwin, actor, Michael Jackson, pop star. Multi, multi-millionaires who went bankrupt. Seriously. You're thinking, how do you blow $100 million? Well, they can. It's possible. Seriously. It's possible to waste millions and millions of dollars. This kid has, okay, and here he is, desperate, in an absolutely shattered state. He's 
spent everything he's got on every voice he could possibly imagine that he knew his dad would hate. And so here is verse 15. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his stomach with what they were eating. Look, for a Jew, you know it, don't you? For a Jew and for who? For a Jew and for Montaz. Pigs are not a good thing, okay? Okay, if you don't know, I don't touch them, I don't look at them, and I don't eat them, right? <laughs> okay, pigs are not a good thing. And here he is in the distant land, living his dream. But he wasn't really a dream because it's now a nightmare. You know, the grass is always greener. I mean, I'm standing here. Those trees are far greener out there than the ones closer. The grass is always greener in the other field, isn't it? Except in the summer in Adelaide, obviously. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I remember, I, was, I, was, I think I was about 20. I was working in engineering in, in a suburb of the bigger city, Birmingham, in a place called West Brom or West Bromwich. If you're a football fan, you may know West Bromwich Albion, the baggies. Uh, I was working away as an engineer there some years in, uh, and there was a great job opportunity near the city of Birmingham in a big, uh, in a big firm. Uh, I applied for the job, got the job, and excited about my next career move, because, boy, the grass looked greener there. And so I went and told my employers, you know, it was a little family business I worked for. They treated me more like a son than an employer, you know. Uh, and so when I shared this news, you know, it didn't get done well. And, uh, and they tried everything possible to get me to stay, equal the pay and everything, you know. But I was adamant, no, I'm going. This is my big opportunity. Why would I stay in little old West Brom when I could work in Birmingham? Okay? Uh, that's how you say it, by the way. Right. Uh, and so eventually, you know, uh, I went, I left, uh, moved to my new job. It was only day two <laughs> when I was like, oh, no. What have I done? I mean, the demands and the people, no one knew me. I was, I was no longer, you know, the favorite Montez. I was not just a new kid amongst 100, 200 other people. And in a, in a, in a, high, in a very demanding, fast-paced environment, nothing was the same. And I was like, what have I done? <laughs> the second day at lunchtime, I'm on the phone. <laughs> Can I come back, please? <laughs> I made a terrible mistake. Fortunately, he had me back. I was back there, I think, shortly afterwards. But look, the grass is never greener on the other side, in the other field. It's not, friends. And the prodigal's finally come to his senses and he's realized he's been a fool. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, look, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please have me back. Hire me. It's a simple choice, isn't he? He stays and dies, starves to death. Great. Are we serious? Or he does the unthinkable. But the trouble is, I mean, to go back to dad, so you can imagine what he's thinking now. What did I say? Yeah, what were my last words? You can shove it, or, or the, the, did, I say, did I say goodbye? Did I leave the door open? He didn't, did he? 
No, no. So he's working through the scenario. You know, you know, is there a way back? And look, he knows there is no way back. After the kick he gave his dad in the teeth, there is no way his dad's going to have him back at home. And so he comes up with the next best thing because the reality is he can't pay his dad back. There's no way his dad's going to have him back. He can't pay him back. He's got nothing to barter with. So what's the ingenious idea he comes up with? It's quite ingenious. What's he going to do? What can he do? What's the one thing he can do? Work too? For what purpose? To repay the debt. That's what's going on here. See, see, see his point is he, he knows his dad won't have him back. Okay? He can't return his money. He's now, he's only thinking he's survival. He just needs to survive. Okay? There's no jobs here. If he can work for his dad, then he can work for nothing. And that's in his dad's interest, you see, because he can begin to pay the loan back. It wasn't a loan inheritance. It's obviously a huge sum of money. He's never going to do it. It's absurd. But his thinking is, in his, in his desperation, that maybe he'll let me work to pay him back. And so that facilitates his move back. Okay? And so here he is on the journey. Verse 20. Remember, Jesus is telling this story. So I, think I want to just bring you back to the point to this point, Jesus is telling the story. Remember we said that these parables usually have one main central theme? Jesus is getting there now, finally. Okay, this is, this is the apex of what Jesus, as not only in the parable, it's not just this parable, Jesus' whole mission to earth. Do you remember John, 7, John 17 in Jesus' prayer? He says, when he's praying, he goes, Father, the world does not know you. What is the most sad thing about the human generation, the human civilization population? Is that we don't really know God. We don't know what he's like. We don't know him. Jesus is telling this parable, and this is his point, is why he's telling it. This is why he's on earth, because he wants to reveal God to us. He wants us to see him. And here it is, it's verse 20. I'm going to labor this more next time, but just, just a, a preview here. So he got up, went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Do you see that? The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Look, there's genuine remorse here. There's genuine sorrow. There's genuine repentance. And I'm going to say more on that in, in a minute. But notice the father has no focus on the man's apology, on this young boy's apology. He's a teenager most probably. Who knows, maybe he's an adult by this time. But certainly a teenager when he left. And look, he, he, the father has no focus on the apology. Rather, he moves on to, on to this. Verse 27, the father said to his servant, you know, look, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. They had to put it on him because what would the son have done with the robe? He wouldn't have had it, would he? He wouldn't have had it. No, put it on him. Hold him down. Okay? But put the robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened, fattened calf. Let's have a feast. 
let's celebrate. He was dead, he's now alive. My son is found. Can you see what he's doing to him? He's reinstating him. Reintroducing him. What, was, what would the feast have done? You see, by the clothing, he's reinstating him into the family. What did the feast do? Feasts were rare. Meat was a rare commodity in that day. Okay, this feast is raiding, but and it involves a community. What's the feast doing? You see, the robe was reinstating him into the household. Everyone in the household would know. What was the feast doing? Yes, he was reinstating him before the community. Remember, this is about the father. What is that saying to the community about this man, this father? He's stupid. He's stupid. We know what this guy did to you, and you are? Can you see what he's, what he's saying to the community? You know, you know, what kind of guy is he? What is he saying to us? And, I think, and again, look, I'll come back to that later, but just simply, it's beautiful. It's emotional, actually. I don't know if you ever find yourself, you know, crying when you read the words of Scripture. This is an emotional emotional scene it's for me it's right up there with some of the most emotional scenes of the bible there are many the cross obviously one of my most emotional ones is when jacob and jacob and joseph are reunited you remember that oh it's moving every time i read that scene or watch a movie i got a movie on that oh it's just moving it's one of the most powerful scenes in the bible this is right up there with that this prodigal returns, and here's his father. Remember, he's spat on him, he's robbed him of his wealth, he's humiliated him, walked out on him, wasted all his father's resources and all the things his father told him were wrong. He's standing here, stinky, grubby, empty-handed. There's nothing to bargain with. There's no way he's going to earn his way back. Okay, and here he is, his father embraces him with love, showers him with love, pours love on him. It's an incredible gesture of extravagance, okay? I think we have to understand the, the, the caliber scale of it. This is extravagant. It's way beyond anything anyone could have envisaged. It's absolutely extraordinary. Prodigal means something of the nature of recklessness. You know, this word, what's the word prodigal means? Of, of wasting, of excessively wasting resources. Tim Keller, famous pastor from America, uh, wrote on this. He called his book, not The Prodigal Son. Does anyone know the book? But The Prodigal Father. Because he's the one who's acting recklessly here. He's the one who's taking his grace and favor and abundance and doing the most absurd thing with it, giving it to this, this young guy who just doesn't deserve it. And so the picture here, excuse me, uh, needs must, is of extraordinary, extraordinary love. I'm going to hold there and just give you some application. Extraordinary love. The central theme is the father. We'll expand on that next time. The audience, we says, is not who we think. Okay, again, we'll look at that next time. But I want to take a general application from here. Here's a general 
thing that any reader of any age can take away from this parable. Okay, it, it's, it's, a sub, it's a sub one, but it's a general thing, and it's this. Okay, whatever you've done, however far you've gone, whatever your sin, whatever mess you made of your lives, God will have you back. That's what Jesus, one of the things Jesus is saying here. It's, it's what was happening. Do you remember what was happening in the scene? I mean, we missed the verses, but there's a lot of terrible people coming to Jesus. And Jesus welcomes them. So the general message of the, of the, of the prodigal son, friends, is that whatever you've done, whatever you've been, God will have you back. Here's what Luke 19 says. It's Jesus' words. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that what was lost. The parable is telling me and is telling you, friends, that Jesus will have you back. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, however long you've been away. We, we had um, Don Francisco's song earlier in communion. It was based on the prodigal. This is another one of Don Francisco. He's an amazing singer from America. He sings a lot of Jesus' uh, uh, stories, you know, in ministry, uh, ministry situations. This is another one. And I want you to listen to these words. It could easily be about the prodigal. It's about another situation. But listen, I don't care where you've been sleeping. I don't care whose bed you made. I already gave my life to set you free. There's no sin you could imagine that is stronger than my love and it's all yours if you'll come home again to me. It captures the essence of this parable, doesn't it? Because of Jesus' death for us, and this is where it all hinges, you see. This is why Jesus is telling the story because he's the, he's the currency that makes it happen. Without him, you couldn't tell this parable. see, Without Jesus, it would be impossible for the Father to show this love. He's the currency. So because he's the currency, because of Jesus, no matter what we've done, no matter how backslidden we are, God is not opposed to us. Look, you can be sitting there. I can be standing here. Doesn't matter, if, doesn't matter if you're standing here or sitting there. Doesn't matter how much money we've given this morning. No matter how well we've sung this morning. No matter how well we know the Bible, we could be sitting here backslidden. And you know, you, we could have backslidden a million miles, an infinite distance from God, from last Sunday to this Sunday. Seriously. If we're honest with ourselves, and if we're prepared to look at our hearts in the space of one week, we could have traveled an infinite distance, distance from God. And here's the message of, of the parable, friends, is God, even in that state, is not opposed to us. He loves you. We'll see next time in the parable that as the sun was returning, let me ask you the question, as the sun was returning, how did the father know that he'd come back? How did the father know he was coming back? He was looking for him. Which means that when he knew 
the son was squandering his wealth on rebellious living. When he was in that condition, what was the father doing? Waiting for his kids. Can you see the, can you see the timeline here? So, so it's not, he didn't wait for the apology. He didn't wait for his return to want to express his love to this child. Can you see? Now, how long has the father wanted to express this love to this young man? From what juncture? After he left him. From the moment he left him. That's the point you see. And so here's the point we're making, is that however far we may be from God, however far we may have backslidden, whatever the state of our heart today, God is not opposed to you, even in our sin. The reason he's never opposed to you, even in your sin, because when Jesus died for you on that cross, he covered every sin of your backsliding. Do you understand that? Whatever we may be wrapped up in there, whatever may be going on, however far we may be from God, whatever may be keeping us from being closer to Him, God is not opposed to you, even then, in your sin. Because the cross covered the penalty for that. He's not opposed to you. He loves you. Generally in John 3, 16, we're told that he loves the world. For God so loved the world. He's making a general statement there of every nationality. But this point stands that God loves you. Now, I want to convey that message to you, friends, that wherever you are in your relationship with God, however long you've been a Christian, however mature you may be, you can backslide as well as I can backslide in a moment. We can walk from this building and commit the grossest crimes against God. Maybe we have. Maybe some of us are in a distant country. Maybe some of us have wandered in and out of churches. And I mean by that, I mean he can come to church here now, but you're not really here. We come each week, but really we're just wandering. And it doesn't take a lot for us to disappear. Hey, God wants you back. God wants you back. Maybe, maybe we hardly ever pray. We just turn up here and do the church thing. God wants you back. You're in a distant country. I wonder how many of us sitting or standing here this morning are in a distant country. He wants you back. He loves you. If I can, look, can I say this in scripture? I'm sure I can. He's not angry with you. He can't be angry with you. This will not allow him to be angry with you because on the cross, he, ex he extinguished all of his anger. Every last bit. And so he's not angry with you. He just wants you home. And I think, if I can just go back to that song, I, I think that's what really captures that essence. Uh, a couple of verses, there it is, thank you. He doesn't care where you've been sleeping. He doesn't care whose bed you made. The point is, you may be in the worst possible scenario right now. He still loves you. And he wants you. And he wants you to be in a right relationship. And he's calling you. Verse 21, look, I want to show you how you come back to God. This is, this is how we come back to God. There's only one way back to God. Verse 21, the son said to his father, to him, Father, I have sinned. 
That is the only journey back. You see, the father in the parable is not listening to his son's uh, speech of repentance, but he, but he heard it, okay? That is the way back to God is a humble one. It's saying, God, I'm sorry. It's acknowledging that, look, I, I may have been in church for the last six months, but you know, for the last six months, my heart has been terribly cold, terribly far. And Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you in private, in public. I've sinned against you in thought, in deed, in action. Coming back to God, even, th even today, even this morning, demands that I say sorry. Here's the thing. How many times have I said sorry to God in the past seven days? Can I say something to you? It's going to hurt. If you haven't, you're lost. Seriously. If you haven't said sorry to God repeatedly through this week, you're in a distant country and you don't even know it. Seriously, how many times my day must have a repetitive pattern of saying, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, I'm sorry. A Christian whose life doesn't function like that, day by day, is in a distant country and doesn't know it. So I want to say to your friends, look, here's how it begins. We can do it right now. We can do it together today. The way back to God has to be through genuine and godly sorrow. Here's what an author writes. We'll move past the next text, please, Malachi, slide 22. The attitude of the prodigal on returning home is a snapshot of the essence of repentance. The previous two parables express the joy of heaven at one who repents. This parable ex pictures that repentance. As the prodigal approaches his father, he relies totally on his mercy, completely humbled and recognizing that the only right he has is his appeal for his father's help. This is the essence of what it means to turn to God. The way to get right with God, the way I entered, the way I should have entered, the only way I can enter into a corporate service on a Sunday morning as I enter through those doors, the very first words I have to say to reveal any authenticity about my faith is God. What's the next words? God. Luke 18. God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. If I didn't walk into this building with those words resonating, reverberating from my heart this morning and thought that I could just enter into what is the most defining moment in worship, the corporate worship hour, if I felt that I could enter here without any consideration for where I stand, I'm to be pitied. I'm lost in a distant country. And it may, it may not just be repentance I need to come to. 
I may need to come to faith for the first time. Friends, hey, he wants you back. He longs for us to be back. He's not angry with us. He just wants us home. And the pathway home, the pathway home, friends, is to come in repentance, in godly sorrow, and in pleading his mercy. And there's ample mercy. Let me finish there. God heartily welcomes back his son. He wants us back, Christians. Let's get home. You see, a gospel-shaped community, here's the last thing I want to say to you. A gospel-shaped community is a community where there's always a way back. Always. No matter how we left or when we left or who left, a gospel-shaped community is one where there's always a way back home, where the door is always open. Don't ever forget that. Amen.